are in the midst of the fall holy days. We're about to head to the feast. Some are already there in different places. Some are already heading that direction. Many will be leaving tomorrow. We're looking forward to a fantastic observance of the Feast of Tabernacles picturing Christ's millennial reign on earth. But before we go, we are here to ask the question, what does the Day of Atonement mean for us and for the world? As we've heard before, the millennium can't happen without the binding of Satan. The feast can't happen without the Day of Atonement. So this day is crucial, so it's good to focus on it. Let's turn over to Leviticus chapter 23 to begin. Leviticus chapter 23. Something familiar we often read. It's good to review. It says in verse 26, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the day of atonement, the day of covering, as was already mentioned. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God for any person who's not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. He says, And any person who does any work on that same day, that person shall I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So we even learn here how God counts time from evening to evening. There's a, a hint of that, a, a glimpse of that. An important day, a serious day, a solemn day, because it has to do with how Satan's influence will be removed in the future. We know that. But we're reviewing that. And we need it. And the whole world needs it. <clears throat> he will be removed after Christ's return. At the same time, we think about and we learn about how we can be brought near to God, how our sins can be covered, which is God's ultimate goal for all mankind. As Dr. Winnell mentioned, only a few of us here in comparison to tens and hundreds of thousands of people even in our community. God is going to bring all near to himself and become at one with him, all those who are willing. This day is central to that. Let's go over to Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 1 and because we find the instructions about the Day of Atonement that were given there, the rituals, the ceremony that was given to Israel that they were to accomplish. Tragically, it begins with the story of two people who did not take God's statutes seriously. And that's the context of the instructions about this day. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they offered profane fire before the Lord 
and died. Now what happened? Let's turn back. We're going to come back to chapter 16, but go back to Leviticus chapter 10. And we get the story. Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. It says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me I must be regarded as holy, And before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. You get the feeling that Aaron had spoken his mind just before that, perhaps. You know, think about this just for a moment. What a tragic and traumatic event this was. As they are being set up as a nation, as they are beginning to understand the commands of God and, and the roles that everyone in leadership will play, and the two sons of Aaron are struck down. You know, Aaron must have been beside himself with grief. Any of you fathers, put yourself in, in that in his shoes. They were Moses' nephews too. But Moses said, Aaron, you better be quiet. God is taking this very seriously. Something went horribly wrong and we need to learn from this. And that is what began the instructions about the Day of Atonement. Now, what, in a sense, were they doing? Well, we might say they were attempting to gain access and closeness to God, to gain spirituality, to, to be forgiven, to be righteous, but on their own terms, according to their own ways. They, they would decide how sin was dealt with. They didn't need to be told how and when, and where. We don't know all the details, but frankly, later in chapter 10, um, it talks about how those who come before the Lord should not be drunk with wine or intoxicating drink. So it could be that they were drunk. It could be that they were inebriated, and it affected their judgment, and they made a horrible decision. Whatever the details, they made a tragic mistake about how to approach God. You know, it it sort of reminds me of an article my wife told me about recently. I think she was sitting in a waiting room somewhere and was reading about Sheryl Crow. Now, what does Sheryl Crow have to do with the sons of Aaron, you might ask? Uh, Very little. But she was uh, recently interviewed, and she said she doesn't go to church, but so she bought a little church building on eBay and had it put on her property. I guess that makes sense. If you don't want to go to church, you let the church come to you, um, I guess. 
but she also said she, she believes in a greater force, but not one with a lot of rules. You know, doesn't that sort of sum up the whole idea today, brethren, of, of deceived, counterfeit, mainstream Christianity? God, I'm willing to come to you. I want to come before the mercy seat. In fact, I will run to the merciful throne of God. They talk about it. They sing about it. They're very emotional about it. But my negotiating point is you're going to have to scrap a few of your rules. I make the rules. Brethren, this day of atonement drives home the point to us that one of the lessons for us and will be soon for all the world is God makes the rules. God makes the rules. Now, we're not confused about that. That's why we're here. We're here to obey God on this day. We learn and learn how to further obey the things that he tells us to do. But it's good to review these things each year at this time. And it's good to think not just how this applies to those people who are deceived out there, but to us. What are the lessons of the Day of Atonement that we can learn and the whole world is going to be learning soon? If you'd like a title for today, it is the Day of Atonement, Three Rules for Approaching God. Three Rules for Approaching God. Let's turn back to Leviticus chapter 16 and we will find out what we're talking about here. What is one of the rules that we have to obey to approach God? And again, you know, those rules were not followed and two men died. They were struck dead. Okay, so so God is very serious about what he says, isn't he? What's the first rule? To approach God, number one, we must go through the high priest. We must go through the high priest. Let's turn over to... Leviticus 16 again. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had offered profane fire before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark lest he die as well. So you, 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 you think Aaron took notes this time? For I will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Aaron was to appear. Not his sons. Not unless they had succeeded him as high priest. Not his neighbor. Not his best friend. Not his co-worker. Not his buddy. Not even Moses was authorized to officiate and go into the Holy of Holies. You know, in our egalitarian society... That kind of rubs you the wrong way in a certain way. Why why is he so special? Why does he get to go in and nobody else? God's not even-handed. Well, God made the rules. And that was rule number one. Aaron was the guy. I did a rough count in this chapter about the words Aaron or he or himself, and they occur about 53 times 
we could go through each one of them, but, um, you know, it's kind of interesting to, to think about that. Just how focused this whole process was on the role of the high priest. <clears throat> he was the one authorized. It's interesting when we look at Jewish tradition. Alfred Adersheim writes in the book, The Temple Ministry and Services. He says, according to a Jewish tradition, the whole of the services of that day were performed by the high priest himself. Uh, that is, even the normal morning and evening sacrifices that were done or on ordinary days as well as that day, and the ordinary Sabbath sacrifices which would have been done like on a day like today when the Day of Atonement falls on the Sabbath. He had to accomplish them personally. Seven days before the Day of Atonement, the high priest left his own house in Jerusalem and took up his abode in his chambers in the temple. A substitute was appointed for him in case he should die or become Levitically unfit for his duties. You know, they took this seriously after uh, what happened to those two men. During the whole of that week, also, he had to practice the various priestly rites, such as sprinkling the blood, burning the incense, lighting the lamp, offering the daily sacrifice, etc. For as already stated, every part of that day's service devolved on the high priest, and he must not commit any mistake. doesn't mean that none, no one else helped him. The other priests assisted, but he had to personally be the one to take the lead on every part of that day. Some of the elders of the Sanhedrin were appointed to see to it uh, that the high priest fully understood and knew the meaning of the service. Otherwise, they were to instruct him in it. On the eve of the Day of Atonement, the various sacrifices were brought before him that there might be nothing strange about the services of the morrow. Finally, they bound him by a solemn oath not to change anything in the rites of the day. He also says that the, they kept the high priest up all night, uh, quoting scripture to him and him reciting scripture back to them. I'm not sure exactly how that would help a person stay focused on the next day, but um, thankfully we don't, you know, we don't do that here. <clears throat> but the point is they were very, very careful about it. Now, brethren, what does this teach us? Well, the high priest was the type of Jesus Christ. We know the procedures of this day under the Old Covenant were pointing to the reality of the sacrifice of Christ when He, as the High Priest and the sacrifice, would Himself personally, by Himself, accomplish the requirements for bringing all mankind to the Father. No one else could do it. A God being had to do it. And as Mr. Armstrong used to tell us years ago, at some point in eternity past, the Father and the Son determined that one of them would become a sacrifice to redeem mankind in this, in this plan. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. <clears throat> we'll pick up where Mr. Siselka left, left, uh, left off last week. Hebrews chapter 2, as we were hearing about uh, some of the things about this day, we find a little bit about this, this role of Jesus Christ. He says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, 
Verse 8, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, that is man. Verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, or for a little while lower than the Elohim, as we read in uh, Psalm 8, I think it is. The Elohim made a little lower than the, the, the God plane. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Verse uh, 17. He says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus Christ, in his mercy, took this on himself, in his love for us. And brethren, think about it. Under the old covenant, year by year, Jesus Christ, who was the Word at that time, and was the one who was the presence in that Holy of Holies where he said, Aaron will come and, and I will speak to him there from above the mercy seat. That was the word, the Lord. And he watched this ritual play out year by year when the high priest went alone into that Holy of Holies. And every year got closer to the time when he knew he would have to do it for us. What a terrifying thing that it was when he finally had to face crucifixion. And his disciples were there and they said, Oh yeah, Lord, we will be there right with you to the end. And it said, all scattered. And he was, he was alone. The Father was there. He said, I am, I'm not alone. The Father is with me. But he still had to do it himself. You know, a lot of people are very brave and courageous in a group when they've got a, a mob behind them, when they've got a committee behind them, it's a lot harder to, to stand up when everybody scatters and be strong by yourself. This man, who is our Savior, was strong, courageous, and fearless. And he did it. He went through this alone. That we might have hope. That we might be able to approach God the Father. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 18. Breaking into it here, he says, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which enters the presence behind the veil, exactly what we're talking about, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, 
having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Rule number one about approaching God. We must go through the high priest. Why? Because only he qualified for paying for our sins. We read in, in this in many different ways. There is no other name under heaven by which men be, may be saved. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is the door. He said those who try to get through the window are, are thieves and robbers. But I am the door. I am the way. Our high priest. God will not allow anyone sneak into the windows of the kingdom of God. They have to go through Jesus Christ. Now, just because mainstream Christianity gets very emotional about, about the name of Jesus, we can't fall into the other ditch of forgetting what he's done, brethren, and how much we owe to him. Frankly, they worship a false Jesus. When we pray, do we take for granted Christ's role? When we say, in Jesus' name, as we approach our Heavenly Father, do they just become words? Let's turn over there in John chapter 16. John chapter 16 and verse 25. He says, These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. Verse 26, John chapter 16. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and I've come into the world again. I leave the world and I go to the Father. Exactly the process that that, that high priest was foretelling. Brethren, there is power in that name. And as we approach on a daily basis and different times during the day in our lives, as we approach the Father, let's never forget who we're going through and who very soon the whole world will have an opportunity to go through. Jesus Christ. We're talking about and will be talking about at the feast in a few days how he's going to rule the world. And all mankind are finally going to know the true Jesus. <clears throat> As we keep atonement, let's never take for granted or treat it cheaply what Christ has done for us and not demanding our own way in, in how we worship God. Our high priest went through the veil alone because of his great love for us. How thankful are we for that? And the Day of Atonement reminds us of that. Another rule for approaching God, besides going through the high priest, number two, to approach God, blood must be shed. Blood must be shed. Let's turn over to Leviticus 16 again. And we read... A little bit further here in the instructions. Leviticus 16, 
The sons of Aaron came into the Holy of Holies wrongly and in just about every way. They did it at the wrong time. They did it with the wrong people. And they did it in the wrong way. The high priest was not allowed to come in without blood. Leviticus 16 and verse 3. Three. He says, Thus Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and of a ram as a burnt offering. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired. This, of course, was the, 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 the normal uh, dress for the other priests. <clears throat> he took off his special dress uh, clothing for that day he shall be girded with the linen sash and with the linen turban he shall be attired these are holy garments therefore he shall wash his body in water and put them on and he shall take from the congregation of the children of israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one rome uh, ram as a burnt offering we'll read a little bit more about the the two goats a little later verse six aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house. He says, verse 9, And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. Verse 11, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering which is for himself and make atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bull as a sin offering which is for himself. He says, finally, in verse Uh, Verse 13, he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony lest he die. Verse 14, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15, then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering which is for the people Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. This is what he had to do with the bull for himself and his family and then the goat which was for the congregation, shedding blood. You know, brethren, today when we are under the new covenant, when we sin, we ask forgiveness of God, and our sins are forgiven. He says He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins when we confess our sins. And uh, it's very clean. There's no mess there's no, there are no blood stains when we kneel down on the floor, are there? Hope not. But brethren, it's, it's very clean. It's wonderful to have our sins forgiven, to have instant access to the Father, to ask forgiveness. And He wants us to have that kind of closeness, to be at one. But you know... If we're not careful, we can take that access for granted because we don't see the blood being spilled. 
Think about what we just read through there. The ritual was very messy. A bull was slaughtered, then a goat was slaughtered, and then sprinkled on that mercy seat of gold. Wasn't very pretty. What happens when an animal is slaughtered? You know, today many of us aren't aren't as familiar with slaughtering animals as in years gone by, but no matter how humanely, without being too graphic, when their throats are cut, they struggle a bit. The blood gushes out. They gasp for breath, and then they expire. We have animals from time to time need to slaughter one, and I enjoy hunting in the field as well, and I think Mr. O'Gwen and and perhaps some others is, is enjoy that. Some people think that the people who hunt or have animals enjoy killing them. But you know, nothing could be further from the truth. My dad taught us great respect for animals in the field and on the farm when one is slaughtered. I never get comfortable with seeing the life ebb out of an animal that dies for me, that I might live. And that really is what's happening. Don't ask, I won't need a show of hands, but you know, how many of you had, had meat this past week? Most of us probably did. To get that meat, I know you all know this, but an animal had to die. Not everybody knows that today in our society. In fact, there was a uh, there was a something that I think Mrs. Lori Lyons sent to me a while back. Um, it was a, a column somebody had written in, and crazy. This is what it says to all of you hunters. This was in a newspaper. All of you hunters who kill animals for food, shame on you. You ought to go to the store and buy the meat that was made there where no animals were harmed. (laughs) Brethren, would you you say as a society we might be losing touch with reality? I think more of our children today would be well served to be exposed to this reality. And I know it's kind of gross. I know it's kind of messy. But to see in truth where life comes from and what has to die for us to live. When we talk about the instructions on this day, there was blood shed and it was messy. What's the lesson for us? There are consequences for sin. There is a lesson. And I think there is a consequence as our society becomes more and more disengaged with reality. There are consequences for sin. And when we are forgiven, God removes from us our sins as far as east is from the west. That's true. And how grateful we are. But brethren, do we take it lightly because we don't have to see the blood? Because under the old system, they would have to see the blood slain. And they would have to make the connection that that animal died because I sinned. And it was a powerful connection. 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, According to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. The lesson is, sin always has consequences. Always, always, always. Did I say always? Let me say it again. Always has consequences. Every time. Without exception. Not once, not twice, not sometimes, not occasionally, but every time it's a rule. We cannot approach the Father without the shedding of blood. Now, does this mean that Christ is slain over and over again? Of course not. We read that as well. He explains in Hebrews, we don't have... Well, let's go there just briefly. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. We, we, We do have time, I think. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. This happened every year, but it was looking forward and it was foretelling and it was a type of the once for all when Christ would go through that veil and shed His blood. Hebrews 9 and verse 24, he says, For Christ has not entered the holy place Places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And brethren, that's why it's so dangerous, as Paul also talks about in Hebrews 6. If we fall away, there's a certain point where if we refuse to repent, there's a certain point where we come to the point that God says, Christ is not going to be slain again for you. Now, thankfully, when we are called, when we have God's Spirit, when we repent, God does not easily let us go. And He, even if we drift, even if we go astray, He works with us. He's continuing to find ways to bring us back. We're going to read something about that here in a moment. Even the tribulation will be in one sense, a merciful opportunity for many people who've been called, perhaps, and converted to come back. But we must never treat it lightly because Christ will not be slain a second time for us. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, 
ceremonially sanctifies, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the goal. That God would draw us near to Him. And, and, and it wouldn't just be a reminder of sin every year, which is what this ceremony was. But it would actually change us. And thank God for that. Thank God for the process that He's given to us. And is going to give to the whole world when this day is finally fulfilled just before the millennium. What a blessing it is that we have a faithful high priest who allowed his blood to be spilled so that we can be changed. But when we sin, brethren, you know, as Christ said, not just murder is sin, but hatred is sin. Calling our brother, even on our mind, worthless fellow. You... You fellow that has no value. Just one thought. Every thought that we have, we need to visualize that that one evil thought must be covered by blood. Must be covered by the sacrifice of Christ. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, a familiar parable that Christ gave, speaks of the mercy and patience and long-suffering of the Father and his, His willingness to cover our sins. And some interesting lessons here. Luke chapter 15 and verse... Verse 11. He said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father... Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the paws that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, isn't that a powerful phrase? When he came to himself. And every one of us in this room who's been baptized has come to that, had to come to that point. That we not just we're making mistakes no not just sinning but we were wrong our nature was wrong our core was wrong and we needed help to be different he came to himself he said how many of our my father's hired servants have bread enough and and to spare and i perish with hunger i will Arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. It's not just that I made a few mistakes, but I am dirt. 
I have no value without you, without your presence in me. I'm not worthy of anything. And he arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And he, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us be eat and be merry for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. We've heard this many times. This is analogous with the father. And, and the desire that he has to draw all mankind to himself, to be at one with every human being who has ever lived or who ever will live. And he was out there looking for his son. And when he saw him afar off, he ran to meet him. He wasn't reluctant to forgive. He wasn't hesitant. He wasn't grudging. He ran to meet his son. He has emotion. He cares for us. And his son had a converted attitude. He said, I'm wrong. I've been wrong. I deserve nothing. Please be merciful. And of course, his father was merciful. And he was grateful. He was so happy they had become at one again. That's our father. That's, that's what he's looking forward to as this day is going to come to pass just before the millennium. There's another lesson, though, for his brother. Verse 25, Now the older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother is coming because he has received, was received uh, him safe and sound. Your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. And he said, to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours... You notice, did he identify with this other human being at all? This son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. The brother of the sinner. You know, brethren, there's a lesson for us in each of these. As the sinner and as the rest of us. That while we should tell our brother the truth, if he or she is going the wrong way, we should not hide or, or cover up sin or condone it, we also must not hold grudges or hard feelings. toward others they have their own master and to their own master they stand or fall the older brother was wrong to hold out on the prodigal son when he came back and repented he was wrong to not welcome him back when he repented he had a problem 
And he did not see, if we put it in the context of today, that Christ died for everyone, even those who annoy you. Not just our enemies, but, you know, our, our, those who annoy us, which, not just our enemies. If the Father is willing to forgive, we should too. Now, this doesn't mean that all the consequences are taken away, though. If my neighbor borrows $10,000 and doesn't pay it back, I'll try to get it back. And if he doesn't give it back, eventually I'll have to forgive him. But I'm not going to give him $10,000 again. Forgive, yes. Trust, maybe not, depending on the severity. But I still must forgive and can't harbor hate. There's one more lesson here. Chapter 15 and verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. He said, all that I have is yours. Brethren, I want to focus on one more lesson of this parable in terms of what we've been talking about. Did you catch what the father said? Yes, he forgave the son coming back, but he said to the others, everything I have belongs to you. All my belongings you are going to inherit. The farm, the vineyards, the cattle, the chickens, the ducks, the barn, the horse, the house, the wagons, the safe deposit box in the bank, you know, the 401k, all my stocks, my RA. You get all of it, son. What about the other son? Were there any consequences for sin? He was forgiven. He was clean. He was new. He had a new lease on life. Everything was brighter and was going to be brighter. He had been given life when he had no life. He was forgiven. All his debts were paid off. But brethren, the party ended that night. When the music stopped, the lights went out. They retired. And I'm sure the prodigal son had a sleep like he'd never had in months. Felt great to be back and forgiven. But the next day, the two brothers woke up and life returned to normal, didn't it? One brother went back to work with the future of inheriting everything his father owned. And the other brother went to work having enough to eat, always having a job, certainly was given a start from his father, but was going to have to start from zero. Brethren, are there consequences for sin? Even though he was forgiven and life was renewed, we live with choices and some consequences follow us even when we're forgiven. God wants us to understand this, that sin always requires blood. And sin usually leaves scars. If I rob a bank tomorrow... I'm not planning to, by the way. And if I rent, repent tomorrow night, God will forgive me. But I'll still ask you to come see me in jail on Monday. There are consequences for sin, aren't there? Always. Always. 
always, always. That's one of the lessons of the Day of Atonement. Young people, think about this. As you are on the cusp of your life and making choices that are pivotal turning points in your life, you can make mistakes that you can repent of, and God will forgive you, but will leave you with baggage you'll have to carry around your whole life that will be very difficult. And part of your parents' job is to help try to help you see to avoid mistakes and see the long term that can be a burden for you for decades to come, even if you're forgiven. Sexual mistakes, promiscuity, drug abuse, alcohol, getting in with the wrong crowd. Even economically, this holds true. There was an interesting interview on NPR this past week. Uh, A man named Tyler Cohen wrote a book called Average is Over. The author talks about how there will be great opportunities, he believes, for some in the future economy, new technologies, uh, greater automation of processes, especially through the Internet. Those with good skills and training and drive will have tremendous opportunities to do well. But he added a note of caution. He said, in the ever-expanding world of grading and rating, everyone is being watched more and more. You've, if you've seen the... the uh, the, the website Yelp, you know that you can look up what people think about a restaurant. You can look up what people think about a doctor. You can look up what they think about a particular business. And it's very interesting. It's very helpful. He says that in the future, employees will probably be rated as well publicly. So this will be a great opportunity for employers to, to, to find out what this person was like in their last job or in, you know, out in the world. Employers already do Google searches on people often before they hire. And, you know, if a employer finds out that I have an email address, I party hard and despise authority at gmail.com, they might not hire me. even if I haven't used that email for years. But they find it attached to my name. He says, because of this, lots of opportunity will be there, but he said, quote, there will be no second chances. There will be no second chances. Your reputation will follow you, much like a bad credit rating (laughs) is very hard to undo. I thought it was interesting. Young people, as Christians, if you do things right, if you work hard, if you apply yourself, if you do what God tells us to do, and don't cheat and steal, and obey God's laws and ask for God's help, as society descends into chaos, you will distinguish yourself just by being good. The point is, there are always consequences for our actions. Mr. Meredith, from time to time, exhorts us to have a deep appreciation, brethren, for the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1, verse 17 talks about that. Not empty sentimentalism, but appreciation to never take it for granted. 
and never take for granted what it takes for us to go to the Father, to approach the Father like we all did this morning when we got on our knees and we talked to the Father and we close it in Jesus' name. It took blood to approach the Father. Thankfully, God is, is so forgiving, is, is so good to us. He, frankly, gives us second chances all the time. You know, we, He forgives us over and over and over and over and over when we sin. He's patient, He's merciful, He's long-suffering, He's quick to forgive, easy to be entreated. But let us never have a casual attitude towards sin. To approach God, we blood must be shed. Number three, the last lesson we'll talk about, uh, last lesson is uh, number three, to approach God, we must have the right attitude. We must have the right attitude. Let's turn back there to Leviticus chapter 16. And we read about it. Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 29. He says, This shall be a statute forever for you in the seventh month. On the tenth day of the month you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you. It is a Sabbath, verse 31, of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. Why are we fasting today? Why are we going without food and water? You know, fasting doesn't automatically make us humble. We read about the the parable of the, the Pharisee and the publican there. It doesn't automatically do it, but it sure helps, doesn't it? You know, when I was growing up, um, we heard about attitude from my parents a lot. I think we got kind of tired of hearing about attitude, but we weren't about to say anything. You know, that that doesn't work. Uh, but, you know, in our home, infractions committed in ignorance or through a mistake or through a weakness. It was corrected, but it wasn't as big of a deal as attitude. If we got self-willed or sassy or know-it-all or back-talking with my dad, things did not go well. He was all over it like a wet blanket on fire. My mother, too, but dads are just somehow a little scarier than mothers, you know. But our dad knew something, and he understood there's a difference between a mistake and pride. There's a difference between a mistake and in your face. There's a difference between a mistake and no one will tell me what to do. And brethren, one of the rules of coming before God that we learn about this day is we've got to have the right attitude. We humble ourselves. We allow God to change our attitude. Is God changing your attitude? How would you evaluate your attitude right now? Now, I'm not going to judge your attitude. I can't see it. But God can. Let's not fight it, brethren. If God is trying to soften us or sweeten our attitude, 
That's how our sins are covered. We read in, in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 7. Notice another aspect of attitude. Here we read about the two goats. He says, He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat, or it should be Azazel, it's not a scapegoat. It represented Satan the devil. The Protestant world looks at these two goats as two parts of Christ's sacrifice. The goat that was that was slain, was sacrificed as Christ. The goat that was let go, I'm sorry, as Christ dying. The goat that was let go as Christ being resurrected. But that's not what it means. The living goat represented Satan the devil who masquerades as Christ, becoming a false Christ, teaching a false gospel with a false message. Lots were cast, which was asking God to miraculously reveal which was which. And then, of course, we, we read how it was then, of course, removed. <clears throat> Brethren, what about us? Where is our attitude? And what are we thinking about as we are preparing for ruling in Christ's kingdom. Let's turn over to Revelation chapter 19 and verse 19. Here is where that second goat is referred to. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 19. Well, let's start in verse, um, yeah, let's, uh, we'll go right to verse 19 and verse 19. Chapter 19 and verse 19. He says, And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Chapter 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Satan the devil will be shut up and bound and chained finally and bear his responsibility for influencing the human family into sin. We fast today for attitude. We fast to have the right humble attitude, and we also fast so that we will not fall into the wrong attitude of Satan the devil. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. Notice Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. 
the Azazel did not carry the sin of the people. It carried its own sin. It carried its responsibility for the people's sins. But it did not take their sins on itself. That was, that was Christ's role. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12, he says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations? For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. What was Lucifer's problem? His attitude. He said, I will approach God's throne, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to try to knock God off that throne. And who's going to stop me? A sassy, selfish, rotten, me first attitude. And brethren, this day tells us that God doesn't play games. He is long suffering, He is patient, He will work out His plan, He will forgive mistakes. But ultimately, He will eliminate rebellion. He will eliminate rebellion, the attitude of Satan. It will be stopped. Verse 15, he says, Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities, who did not open the house of his prisoners? We read a little bit while ago and the offertory about how Christ's role was to open the prisons and set the people free. And Satan is going to be bound, and his rule will be ended, and he will be dealt with, and this day pictures that. But the lesson is for us, do we have the attitude not to just go along and get along, but really to let God set the rules in my life. Mr. Armstrong used to explain that that was the first lesson Adam and Eve were faced with and failed. Will they let God determine right or wrong? Not their own experience or their own judgment. You know, when it comes down to it, that's the sum total of life. One question. It's pass or fail. It's yes or no. There's no ambiguity about it. It's will I let Christ rule me. And without the right answer, we cannot approach the Father. Let's turn over to John chapter 12 and verse 27. This day ultimately is about how we can have a relationship with the Father and how... God is going to deal with this evil spirit that has stirred up so much pain and misery and an attitude of hate and competition. And he's going to be eliminated. And all of us, the whole world, will have an opportunity to be clean and to have 
a different way and have access to the Father. John chapter 12 and verse 27, notice. John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. But Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And brethren, in a few short years, it it appears, this is going to come to fruition. And finally, Satan the devil will be restrained. And verse 32, if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this he saw, said, signifying but what death he would die. Jesus Christ was about to die. He was troubled. But then he said, this is why I'm here. Why should I ask to be delivered from this hour? This is what I came to do ultimately to draw all mankind to myself and allow them to have access to the Father. That's tremendous. Let's turn in one final passage here, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. As we think about, brethren, how precious it is that we can go to God every day And how much the world yearns for that opportunity. They don't really know it yet. But they cry out for an opportunity to really know God. And really have their sins forgiven. And really have a relationship. And really have a better life. And really understand the truth. And that's going to happen. This is not just about us. This is about what we know, when what we know is going to spread to the whole world. And the whole world will enjoy the millennial reign of Christ with Satan bound and access to the Father. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19. He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." As we are keeping this day, brethren, let's be grateful for the access that we have to our Father. That He wants us to come to Him. He wants us to be at one with Him. He wants us to, you know, jump into His lap, so to speak, as young children love to run and, and, and be held by their Father. You know, in some ways, what a... What a rotten counterfeit it is that, that, that the whole idea of Santa Claus and, and children can run up and sit in his lap and 
Tell them all the selfish things they have and all the things they want. And, and, and what a horrible counterfeit of the true Father who is there for us and wants us to draw near to Him and wants us to ask Him for help in time of need. As we are keeping this Day of Atonement, let's thank God for it and all the meaning it has for us and the access, the tremendous access, because we have a high priest, because we are covered by his blood, and because he is, through his spirit, helping us to have the right attitude, the access we have with the Father, which will soon, very soon, be open to the whole world.